Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. If you listen to NPR a lot, you probably know Linda Holmes. She's NPR's pop culture critic. She's also the host of the podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour. She has amazing taste in TV and movies, and she loves to talk about it. But Linda's first love was always writing. She just released her debut novel. It's called Evie Drake Starts Over. Linda could have mailed it in and turned in something about a great TV show or a band you've never heard of, but she didn't. It's a book about love and loss and the power of starting over with a little bit of baseball thrown in. And really, it's about what Linda knows best, a good story. Linda Holmes, thanks for coming back to Bullseye. Absolutely. Hi, Jesse. It's nice to see you. It's always good to see you, buddy. So I know from being a public radio host that sometimes like a literary agent will email you because literary agents just read the New York Times and listen to NPR all day. <laughs> it's true. And I, I, you know, I've never had a, a book idea to sell or anything, uh-huh. but I, I just imagine an email where a literary agent emailed you and said, I would love to work on a book with you. And, and they just assumed that the book would be 100 things that are making us happy this That's week. Exactly right. That's exactly right. I think I, I was very, very fortunate that I had heard from a number of agents over the years, all of whom were. Very nice. And, you know, when I the ones I reached out to were receptive to the idea of of a novel. It just wasn't what they had had in mind. And the agent I ultimately wound up going with was not one of those people. It was somebody who had been recommended to me by a couple of people in book world who I know who had kind of said, I think she might be really perfect for you. And she followed me on Twitter. And so I said, well, she must vaguely know who I am because she follows me on Twitter. So I just said to her, can I send you this? And she said yes. And she became my agent. Did you always intend to write a novel? Intend is a funny word. Uh, Hope, want, absolutely, my entire life, as long as I can remember. Oh, really? Your entire Mm -hmm. life? Because I was going to say, because you were not a writer before you were a writer, you kind of fell backwards into writing. That's right. I mean, I so when I was a little kid, I totally wanted to write a novel, fiction, all that stuff. I wrote stories when I was a little, little kid. And then I wrote stories through high school. And then I went to Oberlin, where in order to take creative writing, you had to submit samples of your work to professors. And I was much too nervous to do that. So I just didn't do it. And so I just never pursued it officially after that. But I kept I always had, you know, 10 pages of one thing and 10 pages of another thing. And I would just sit down and pick away at stuff. But I never really did anything seriously in the direction of novel writing until this. Can we talk a little bit about how you became a writer? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I used to be a lawyer. Um, I was. Why did you go to law school? I went to law school because I love arguing, and I I don't mean that in the sense of like the back and forth argument clinic kind of way, but in the just making a good argument is a thing that I find incredibly pleasurable, and. I love understanding the logic of how things fit together. And I had studied a bunch of Supreme Court cases in college, and that was those were very compelling pieces of history to me. So I started to get interested in that. I went to law school because I really didn't know what I wanted to do after college, and it seemed like something that I would enjoy. And so I went and I studied law, which I enjoyed. Um, I did love 
writing about law. I loved the, as I said, the internal logic of it. I loved trying to solve the puzzles of it. Um, I became a legislative attorney. I was never like a trial attorney. I was never like an objection, that kind of attorney. I was a legislative You did always wear a white suit, though, <laughs> which I thought was a little over the top. You had a big wig. Yeah. Um, I... Uh, I was a legislative lawyer, so I wrote bills and stuff when I lived in Minnesota. And then I was an appellate lawyer for a while for the state. So I would, you know, if you think about law and order when he goes to the appellate court and it's just arguing to a bunch of judges, I did that kind of lawyering. Um, But then I started uh, reading what was then, let's see, originally it was called Dawson's Rap, and then it was called Mighty Big TV, and then it was called Television Without Pity. And it was this big TV recapping site. Um, which has since spawned a bunch of interesting writers, Heather and Jessica, who run Go Fug Yourself, and Pam Ribbon, who uh, wrote Ralph Breaks the Internet and some and was a writer on Moana and some other cool stuff. Like, it's got a really cool alumni list. This was very early in the idea of having a pop culture website and yes. was a really foundational institution of yeah. what pop culture criticism on the Internet could be. I think that's right. And it was also like slightly mad because, you know, people I was I was talking about this with somebody recently that, you know, now when Game of Thrones airs, you'll get a recap. You'll get recaps up within a half an hour of when the show is over. When we were doing this, we had several days to write and we would write these 20 page kind of explanations of shot for shot, whether it was Dawson's Creek or I did a lot of reality shows it was like Survivor and stuff like that. It's a really different – it is a bit of a descent into madness. And um, so I did that for – I wound up writing for them uh, originally freelance, then mo- kind of more and more. And eventually I worked for them for a year. I don't mean to interrupt you here. No, 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 sure. That must have been a decision because you were a lawyer. I was. That's and I, a career that many people aspire <laughs> – you know, that's a that's, that represents success for many people. Yeah. I mean – I only ever liked the part of lawyering where I was writing, honestly. So that was always the part I liked. And even when I was an appellate lawyer and I was handling actual cases, I remember my boss saying to me once, he was like, you don't even care about this stuff. You just like a good story. (laughs) Because when you're dealing with appellate cases, you're looking at a whole record. And I did employment stuff. So it would be a whole story of how someone wound up quitting or leaving their job. And those stories are really compelling in a lot of cases. So yeah, it was a decision. I mean, I made everything into writing at that point. I remember like I had a fantasy baseball team in my the fantasy baseball league of the legislative office that I worked in, but I never like moved players around or I would go to the draft because it was really fun. And then I would just leave my team alone, which is not how you play fantasy baseball. I would just leave my team alone. They would get injured. I would not do anything. But I would issue press releases from my fake baseball team <laughs> about how, like, there were uh, arguments in the clubhouse between guys who were on my team. I would just write, like, it was sort of like fanfic for your your fantasy baseball team. I remember there was one time when Trot Nixon was on my team. And I, rem- I don't remember who it was, but I said that another guy was fighting with Trot Nixon. And uh, he said... He's just mad because his name is Trot and and Nixon. So it was like that. Uh, so I was turning everything into a writing exercise anyway. And then I just kind of gradually it took over. I started doing a little more writing for MSNBC and TV Guide and stuff like that. And it started to kind of impinge. So then I got a 75 percent lawyer job, 75 percent time. 
And then it was just kind of a collapse into let's think about television all the time. So you made your bones writing for television without pity, especially about reality shows. I think The Amazing Race in its early days was something people still say, oh, you know Linda Holmes, Mm -hmm. The Amazing Race recapper? Also The Apprentice. Were you someone who thought about those television shows as deeply as uh, the you know, 20-page recaps would suggest before you had the job of writing 20-page recaps of those shows? No, I don't think so. I think that when you have the opportunity to dive into something at that rather preposterous length, it will make you, um, it will make you take more uh, time to examine the fine points of it. And everybody who was writing recaps for that site had different things that they liked to focus on. There are people who loved to go very, very deep into strategy with reality shows, which I did some of. Um, I always really love to talk about the dynamics, you know, group dynamics on Survivor, which whatever you think about Survivor, it, it does contain real actual group dynamics, even when you accept that it's a group of people who know they're on television. It's still group dynamics. And with The Amazing Race, they're especially in the early days before it got kind of as with as it was later. There really was a lot of interesting stuff about travel strategy, about like how to, you know, what was the smart thing to do and what was the smart, like which flight would you take and why? And did it make sense to take a connecting flight to get a half an hour advantage? Because what if you're what if you're you didn't make your connection, then you'd be really hosed. And I loved that kind of weird. I loved that kind of weird stuff. One of the things about television without pity in particular was it was one of the only places that cared as much about television shows as people who make television shows do. I mean, right. I think of there be, having been a revolution in television criticism, which basically just went from even television critics expecting all television shows to be bad and just like being like, well, this one's not that bad. Right. To people expecting them to be good, which is also important. But one of the other things is, like, I can open The Ringer on my phone in the morning and get six different essays about Game of Thrones. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? That are, like, all thoughtful in different ways. Right. Uh, And I think one of the big stories of Television Without Pity was people who made television shows were just pumped that anyone cared because they had never talked to anybody outside of the industry who really cared in the way that they cared. Right. And I think, again, the vast majority of those people, even when the the writing was sometimes critical, were very, very kind about it. And um, often not then, but later, you would find out that they appreciated that work or they appreciated the fact that you cared about it so much. There were certainly people who took who took exception to it, creators. Um, but yeah, I think most of them understood these people are are super invested in in what we're doing, and they really care about whether it's good or not. Not just the person writing the recaps, but the forums that we had, which were kind of this sprawling, wild community of people who cared deeply about these shows. And we definitely found out later that there were writers and creators who would go in there. To kind of like, how's it going? Like, not necessarily to say if these people don't like something, we shouldn't do it anymore. But just to get a read on where the fans' heads were, fans who actually cared about the show and were paying attention. Let's talk about your novel, Evie Drake Starts Over. It is a story about a a woman who 
is leaving her husband uh, when she finds out that her husband has died in an accident. Mm-hmm. She has a best friend who's a single parent. Mm-hmm. She has a single parent. And she ends up having this guy living in her house who's a ball player who has a case of the yips, which mm-hmm. is to say he can he can no longer... He's a pitcher and he, and he can't throw strikes. Yep. Did you start with an idea about that single parenthood stuff or did you start with an idea about what it would be like to have the yips? I started with both. I started with the widowhood story, the woman who is widowed, as one thing I was thinking about writing. And I, the ball player story was another thing I was thinking about writing. And they existed separately in my head. Um, and then at some point it occurred to me, oh, like, what if I, like, clonked these stories together? Because they're both about people who are feeling kind of broken in a way. And I thought maybe these stories and characters have something to say to each other and something to say about, you know, each other's stories. And, and you know, I love a love story, so... <laughs> you really do love a love story. I do love a love story. Why I do really you love do. love story so much? I mean, I guess I'm asking you, like, wh- why is it exciting to see the conflict between man and nature or whatever? <laughs> it's like the most fundamental type of... You know, it's not just that I love a love story. I love the exact kind of love story that I like to read or watch. I love romantic comedy banter, so there's a lot of that in the book. I love a story that feels... um that feels like it's growing out of actual adult friendship as well as attraction and things like that. So that so that's what I wanted the book to be. I don't love all love stories, but the ones I love, I love a lot. And most many of the most precious movies and things like that in my own life are our love stories, our romantic comedies especially. Can you um, give me some examples? Absolutely. My very first favorite grown-up movie was The Sure Thing, which is written by, uh, which is a Rob Reiner-directed movie um, with John Cusack. And uh, I, I loved When Harry Met Sally, although I think, you know, as you age a little bit, you start to have skepticism about some of its messaging You start to get more excited about that apartment he has. Well, exactly. Oh, what an apartment he's got. Well, and you want to just hang out with the Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby couple. Um, In that apartment, though. In that apartment. I'm talking about the apartment here, Linda. The apartment's important. Oh, I want a beautiful 80s loft. Apartments are important. But also, like, I, as a teenager, I was uh, obsessed with Moonlighting, the TV show. Um, which has a lot of that kind of back and forth banter. Um, that kind of stuff is my favorite element of um, Aaron Sorkin writing. Um, <laughs> I was about to say, you and I, when we first became friends, one of the first things we bonded over was our enthusiasm for the show Sports Night. I love Sports Night, which has some of that stuff. He also wrote The American President, which has some of that stuff. He writes great, like, little back and forth. Just that, I love that stuff. I could just gobble it up and... Um, so I very much wrote the kind of book that I really like to read, which I think is is a, a good approach for a first novel, especially write something that you would really, really super want to read. Are there kinds of uh, romance and love stories that you don't have that reaction to? I don't hear you describing like grand destiny based love stories, which is a big yeah. type of love story. Yeah, I think I'm less about destiny than I am about choices. 
and I really have a soft spot for frankness in conversation about this kind of stuff. Um, I remember when I saw Trainwreck a couple of years ago, which is Bill Hader and Amy Schumer. There's a scene in which he basically just says to her, like, I like you and I think we should go out. And she's still in a sort of a flirting, denying kind of game playing mode. And she's a little bit kind of caught off guard by the fact that he's like, no, I I like you and I think you like me. And so we should be a couple. And it's I really was into that scene a lot because I have a real I like those kinds of regular conversations where it doesn't start with, you know, I, I mean, God knows, I've already acknowledged my love of moonlighting, which is the ultimate kind of, no, I don't want to. But I have a soft spot as I get older for stories where it's not based on, oh, I hate you, I hate you, and then all of a sudden the people like each other. So, yeah, I, I tend to not, I'm not that into those kind of, it starts with hate and then it becomes love. Like, that's, I don't know. Very often the people who you think that you hate when you meet them, you should just not be friends with them. Just go, don't talk to them. Don't sleep with them. Just don't talk to them. Just don't be friends with them. More Bullseye still to come. Stay with us. When we return from a quick break, Linda and I talk about finding beauty in the long and boring baseball season. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Babbel. Have you always wanted to speak a new language? Whether it's for travel, work, or brain training, Babbel's 10 to 15 minute lessons will get you speaking confidently in your new language. Choose from Spanish, French, and more. You'll learn through real-life dialogues, speech recognition, and interactive trainers. And Babbel's spaced repetition method actually makes you remember what you've learned. Download the app or go to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L, dot com to try Babbel for free. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. So you're listening to this NPR podcast because you want to be informed. You want to learn something. But what if you need a little break? Well, then you want to check out Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. It's the show that lets your lizard brain enjoy itself for once. You can be serious again later. Listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Alexis, we got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Season one, done. It's over. Season two, Coming at you hot. Three years after <laughs> three our now. season three one. Now. Technically right. almost four years. All right. And now, listen, here at Can I Pet Your Dog, the Smash yes. It podcast, our seasons run for three and a half years. <laughs> and then at season two, we come at you with new hot co-hosts named you. Hi, I'm Alexis. <laughs> we also have uh, field trip. Dog tech. Yeah. Dog news. Dog news. Celebrity guests. Oh, big shots. Will not let them talk about their resume. Nope. Only yeah, the dogs. Only the dogs. I mean, if ever you were going to get into Can I Pet Your Dog, now's the time. Get in here every Tuesday at MaximumFun.org. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Linda Holmes. She's one of the hosts of the podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour. Her book, Evie Drake Starts Over, is out now. Do you have stories about single parenthood in your own life? I don't know, honestly, if you have both your parents or if both your parents were part of your life. I have both my parents. My mother had both her parents uh, for a very, very long time. My father's father died when my father was quite young, but there's not a lot of single parenthood of the type that there is in this book in my family, but there is among my friends. I have friends who are single parents. I have friends who had single parents both through death and through divorce and other things, there's something about 
the complicated relationships in in families that I wanted to write about. I don't know that I sat down and thought I want to write a book about single parenthood. But I think I wanted to write a book about the lots of the lots and lots of different ways that people love each other. And one of those is the ways that people supplement each other's that people supplement and become part of each other's families. And I think that's something that I've experienced a lot in my own life. There are people who I'm friends with who I feel like I've kind of become part of their family or they've become part of mine or both. What about the baseball? Are you a baseball fan? I am a baseball fan. I don't get to watch as much professional baseball these days as I wish I did. I keep trying to spend more time with it, and I have so much other stuff I'm supposed to watch and pay attention to. But when I was a kid, baseball was the sport that I watched on television. I lived in uh, I lived outside Philadelphia at the time of the 1980 Phillies and, you know, all those. That whole team was very big in my life. Um, my, There's a lot of solid maroon uniforms and powder blue. I'll tell you, man. Um, every once in a while, I see, just recently I saw somebody in the crowd at a Phillies game with that powder blue uniform shirt with the with the old P that they used to have. Sure, with the uh, baseball in, with the, the, baseball in the negative in the, space. Yeah, and it was so. It's such a like. It's like smelling something that your parent that your mom used to cook on the stove. It just is that kind of <laughs> elemental feeling. But just anytime um, you see a V-neck T-shirt. <laughs> Or you know, suddenly like, feel the double knit in your hand. Exactly. Or or based on kind of the later iterations of the Phillies, a generation later, sort of anytime you see somebody with kind of tobacco juice all down their shirt. But <laughs> um and then, you know, my dad took me to a no hitter one time, a Terry Mulholland no hitter, uh, which was pretty cool. Well, that's nice. Terry Mulholland's also a former San Francisco Giant. I know, I know. And we went it was a very ordinary, like go you know, go to what was then Vet Stadium on a regular night and just go to a game and it was a no hitter and it was a no hitter that was a it was a 27 batter game it would have been a perfect game except for an error and then they picked the guy off of first after he reached on an error it's as close as you can get to a perfect game but it wasn't one anyway and then my nephews are major baseball players and fans and so i've spent a ton of time at little league in the last 20 years my nephews are getting old. Um, I spent a ton of time at Little League when they were growing up. So my nephews are are, are big baseball guys. So yeah, there's baseball. Is, there's a lot of baseball in my my family. Um, even though I would quickly get in the weeds if I tried to talk about professional baseball right now. I feel like I was I was an adolescent baseball obsessive, mm-hmm. and I'm I felt about it the way that I'm sure our friend Glenn Weldon felt about Batman, and. Um, you know, when I when I got into post-adolescence in college and had artsy friends and uh, a mix of artsy friends and nerdy friends, neither of whom like sports, I kind of let it go by the wayside. But I feel like as my life has become more difficult as a parent and business owner and all these things mm-hmm. that are really hard, I like the way that baseball is so that it happens almost every day. And is a little bit boring mm-hmm. and is very peaceful for a thing that is exciting. <laughs> this is this is my whole thing with baseball is that one of the reasons why I, I greatly prefer being a casual baseball fan to being a casual football fan, for example, which I was for a while, is that there there are so few football games in a given year. There are so few professional football games that your team plays that you have to be really angry if your team is losing because it affects the entire season every time your team loses a game 
Whereas in baseball, there are so many games that no one game is make or break. And that's sort of the way life is, right? Like no one, you know, the vast majority of the time, I won't say always, but the vast majority of the time on a given day, no one thing that happens is the make or break thing of your life. There's it's a it's a long season. You know, you can come up with this is why I think baseball is good for metaphors. It's a it's a long season life. You know, you got you got 160 some games and just just, you know, it's OK if you lose one. That's one of the things that I appreciate about watching baseball. One of the things about baseball players that makes them so remarkable to me is that football and even to some extent basketball players who are playing once a week or two or three times a week enter into a warlike mind state, mm-hmm. right? You know, they drink four Red Bulls and uh, do everything within their power, particularly mm-hmm. in football. They ignore intense physical pain and try and hurt each other. It's like entering into the Marvel Cinematic Universe as an actor. You just have to give over your entire body and being to that process for however long it lasts. Exactly. And that is something that's, uh, you know, it's not who I am, but I can imagine (laughs) it in a way. Like I can imagine just every week it builds towards Sunday. Sunday you leave it all on the field, right? Mm -hmm. Baseball is a, a failure game where one of the most important skills is to be able to do it wrong and then just right away do it again. <laughs> Absolutely. And even people who are, I mean, it's a its a cliche about baseball, but even people who are really, really, really good hitters in baseball get hits less than half the time. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's designed to be uneventful a significant amount of the time. And there are people where that's why they will never watch baseball and they will never like baseball, is that it is designed to have long lulls. But I, I, I love that about it. And I like the fact that I am a person who loves the fact that it does not have a clock, which means, in theory, anything can happen almost until the very, very, very end. You can be down to your last out and you can score another five runs. In theory, you can score another 20. <laughs> Just it's it's. I like that quality about it. I like the fact that it has that that sort of ability to be unexpected and it's not like basketball where you can't there's no dribbling to just kind of run out the clock and all that stuff and things that are similar to that like intentional walks and stuff people tend to boo which i i boo also it's baseball you gotta do the whole thing play the game wait you're telling me you're a phillies fan who likes to boo the baseball players (laughs) i was never that kind of phillies fan i was never that kind of phillies fan philadelphia has great fans man come on i think for the reason that failure is such a big part of baseball and resiliency over a long grinding season is such an important part of baseball. The yips are a particularly terrifying and upsetting thing. Mm-hmm. I'm a Giants fan first and foremost, but I grew up with my, with my dad as an A's fan, so I also like the A's. Mm-hmm. And there are two guys on the A's who are currently suffering from the yips to one extent or other. There's a designated hitter, a great designated hitter, one of my favorite A's named Chris Davis, who stopped playing the outfield despite being a very athletic guy, largely because he is unable to throw. He can lob the ball, but he cannot throw the ball. And this has been true since he was in college. Mm 
and has been just is is the reality of his life. And more recently, their second baseman, Jerickson Profar, has struggled to make throws from second base, which, you know, for some reason seems to be a, a real uh, center of yip activity. It's a yip magnet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with Steve Sachs and Chuck Knobloch being really notable examples oh, yeah. in the last 30 years. But I, I think that, like, baseball being this sport of endless repetitions and endless getting up off the mat makes it so scary to think of what if you what if you were that person who who had built their entire life and identity around being able to do that around not just repeating your motion in the way that a golf swing a golfer does with their swing but also like doing it again after you failed mm-hmm. to not feel like you can do it again after you failed yeah it is a really terrifying thing and therefore very compelling to me. I think the first story about the Yips that I closely kind of followed and read about was Mackie Sasser, who was a a catcher for the Mets, um, who, you know, if you watch baseball, you kind of know how it works, right? The the pitcher makes the pitch, the, the catcher gets the ball, and then the catcher, this is supposed to be the easy part, the catcher just kind of throws back to the pitcher so that the pitcher can make the next pitch. He totally lost the ability to throw back to the pitcher. He would the ball would get kind of stuck to his glove. It was like he was nervously. It was almost um, like a physical manifestation of a stammer, and he would sort of tap the the ball against his glove. It's awful to watch. It's absolutely awful. He tried therapy. He tried. I think hypnotism and every sort of because everybody looks at this. They look at this happening to you, and they say this is in your head. Oh, you're overthinking it. Just relax. And you know that they have tried that. And it's it does not work. And it's the same thing when you watch a guy like Chuck Knobloch, who had been a really, really good baseball player, who can no longer make a throw from second to first that he had probably been making since Little League. And it's not just that he can't make it super fast or super accurately. He's throwing into the stands. He hit Keith Olbermann's mother. That is true. (laughs) Threw into the stands hit of all people Keith Olbermann's mother I mean it is a it is a story that is it, it almost seems impossible that that's true that he threw into the stands and hit her but he did and that is the kind of thing they seem cursed these guys and it does happen in other sports it happens in golf is sort of where the, the term comes from it can happen in in basketball where people can't do three free throws and stuff. But in baseball, there's something about it where it seems to rob people of the ability to do simple things, not even just really, you know, it's pitchers who who they're not just not as good as they used to be They're They can't hit anything. They're all over the place. It's sort of like in, in um, if it was in Bull Durham where the guy says hit the bull, throw it, throw it at the bull. But if you did that accidentally all the time and you were hitting the bull, the yips to me are a terrifying phenomenon and very relatable. I think if you're a writer or any kind of creative person, you've had that thought of like, what if I woke up one day and I just never had another idea? And a lot of these guys, they don't come back. Or they, if they're lucky enough to be like Rick Ankiel or whoever, he had got the yips as a pitcher when he was very young and had time to go off and basically reinvent himself as a position player. But you have to then have that happen to you when you're super young or it's not worth it. Um, and usually it happens to guys who are a little bit older. So it's terrifying. You 
live in Washington, D.C., where NPR is based. I do. And Washington, D.C. is a big city. Have you lived in the kind of small town that your book is set in where there is that quality of everyone watching uh, that you describe a professional athlete feeling, but for your actual life? I, um, I've i never lived in a place like that, but the town in Maine that the book is set in is based on a part of Maine that my family used to go in vacation in that I very, very much love. Um, and it has this beautiful combination of, you know, it's physically beautiful, it's beautiful water, but you also feel like you're in a place where everybody kind of knows each other. And it has a really um, warm, lovely quality, but also it's very touristy. So it's a, it's a very interesting combination to me of tourist stuff, but they make you feel really welcome. Um, so I've spent a lot of time in that kind of spot, but not lived in one, no. Do you like chowder? I do like chowder. I like chowder. I like, um, my family used to go out on a deep sea fishing boat with uh, Captain Bill Gargan, who had a a boat. They would take you out, you know, take the tourists out. You just go fishing and catch cod and stuff like that. I love all that stuff, man. So foreign to me. I love all that stuff. Oh, it's so like... We would go up there and just, you know, it's not beach kind of shore. It's the, the the house that we used to go to and rent. It's not, it's a rock. It's a shore of rocks. So you would go and um, I think this is kind of a Hodgman thing, right? Yeah, our mutual friend John Hodgman has written often about the, the painful beaches <laughs> of Maine. But it's like you would, we would just go and kind of my sister and I, when we were young, we were sort of tweens, they would call it, I guess. And you would, we would go and just kind of poke around and, find starfish and stuff like that. It was it was a great place to spend time. And no no internet or television or anything like that, even even then. I'm not even sure they had a phone. It was great. I still loved going up there. As a connoisseur, which I think you are, <laughs> did you find it difficult to be a creator? Did you find that your connoisseurship helped or hindered your creativity? Like in the sense that I had... You listed to me... Right. The seven things you love most about particular romantic comedies... Right. ...and exactly why you love them, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. There are people who use that to make amazing pastiche, mm-hmm. you know, Star Wars or Pulp Fiction or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who use that. There are certainly many creators are huge fans of the kinds of things that they want to make. There are also creators who work on a more, I don't want to say instinctual because it downplays the intellectual parts, but like... Right, sure. Um, whatever, however you want to describe that. I know that as a connoisseur myself, I find it paralyzing. <laughs> I tried to keep my goal for this book um, kind of uh, circumscribed. In the sense that I wanted to write the kind of book that I really wanted to read and don't find often enough. Even though, you know, I read many books like this that I love, what do I really wish for when I'm looking for a book to read? I think if I were trying to, I think it will be a different kind of challenge when I'm writing something that is more, I don't know, far out. 
rather than trying to kind of there there is a way in which this book is me trying to perfect a thing I love. <laughs> and that's that is um it's it's intimidating, but it's also really fun. And if you feel like you if you kind of feel like you got it, then when you go back and read the book, you're like, Oh, I like this book. I really I I like this book. I dig this book. This is a book I would totally read and give to my friends. Are you just describing turning the process of writing a novel into the process of solving a word problem in law school? Kind of, kind (laughs) of. I use law school for everything. I tell people that all the time. I argue, this is why I argue people on Twitter kind of under the table about various cultural things. It's law school, man. Well, Linda, I'm so happy about your book. It's so wonderful. Uh, and I frankly I told you this before but I was worried I wouldn't like it because you're such a great pal Uh, (laughs) I wouldn't know what to do I really have gone through life trying to avoid my friends performances for that reason I get that I understand that I'm really glad that you took the I'm glad that you took the risk (laughs) but I really loved your book and thank you very much for coming to visit me thank you Jesse Linda Holmes she's NPR's delightful pop culture critic You can find her on NPR.org, on NPR programs, including Pop Culture Happy Hour. And you can and should get a copy of her book, Evie Drake Starts Over, which was just released. It is almost unfair how good her debut debut novel is after a 20-year career doing other things. She is a real, she's a real brilliant person. Uh, And it's a wonderful book. It's fun and funny and uh, much more moving than it has any business being. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week our producer Ragu saw 10 ducks swimming across the lake in an orderly single-file line like they were on a little duck field trip. It was very nice. By the way, I was on tour with my comedy show Jordan Jesse Go, and while I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota, I got to see a line of adorable goslings cross the road. We had to hit the brakes on our rental car. It was a very suburban Midwestern experience. So we both love nature, Rigu. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He's away taking care of a beautiful new baby. So Rigu Manavalan stepped in for him this week. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We have help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Thanks to them and thanks to Memphis Industries, their label, for letting us use that. They're super nice about it. They just were like, I emailed them one day and they were like, yeah, it's a public radio show, right? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, yeah, you can use it. Before you go... There are so many great bullseye shows available to you. They're all for free. I've been doing this for far too long. I'm nearing death now. Just go to our website, MaximumFun.org, or check out our YouTube page. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne YouTube, and you will find it. Like, how about my conversation with Rick Moranis? Haven't you ever wondered why Rick Moranis pretty much quit acting for a couple of decades? You can find out why if you listen to that show. 
Or how about this? Ani DeFranco's got a new memoir out. Why don't you listen to my conversation with the one and only Righteous Babe? You can find both of those on our YouTube channel and our website and on your favorite podcast app. All free. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.